0: This is In Residence, conversations from Town Hall. I'm Steve Scher. The news is pretty frightening. I guess that's the job of the news media, frighten us. They're doing a pretty good job. Do we buy more when we're agitated? I don't know. Well, we buy more fear. But we don't have to wallow in it. There are plenty of people trying to make the world a less frightening place. It's a surprise that one of them is Nicholas Kristof. The award-winning New York Times columnist reports on terrible conditions in some of the worst places in the world, He was in Burma to witness the ongoing killing and harassment of an entire ethnic group over religious differences. He reported on the Ebola crisis in Africa back in July, and he saw some of the worst, most bestial human acts in Congo. Yet it was there he also encountered what he has called one of the most beautiful actions by humans.
1: The two people who left the deepest impression on this trip to the Eastern Congo were uh, this um, warlord who was slaughtering people, raping women. Uh, utterly brutal, and he certainly underscored the human capacity for evil. Evil is a sort of biblical word; it doesn't. It seems strange to talk about in the 21st century. He was evil, and then there was this Polish nun who refused to evacuate, was feeding the hungry, was running this program for kids, was trying to keep the warlord out of her town, and risking her life, um, and. Now, it was an example of courage and compassion and empathy, resilience, uh, saintliness almost that uh, you know, I've never seen surpassed. And uh, so I came back from the Congo, and it was really the impression of her kind of overwhelmed my impression of him. It was she that I remembered most. And so I managed to come back from Eastern Congo feeling better about humanity. When was that? 2007.
0: Did that start to shift your approach to the writings you were doing and the and the the thinking you had
1: overall about your role? You no, know, I think I'd seen some of the same thing in in other places in in Darfur, these Chadian peasants who had nothing but were willing to share their nothing with um with other um with Darfuris. Um and And elsewhere in in eastern Congo um people who were taking in orphans, even though they had just nothing to share um, you know the courage people showed uh i i I'd been staggered by human reservoir of just decency when it's needed most
0: seeking the better way is what has inspired his newest book a path appears christoph has written that book with his wife and partner cheryl Dunn. they're pulitzer prize winners they're co-authors they're a couple they wrote half the sky turning oppression into opportunity for women worldwide in 2009 a path appears transforming lives creating opportunity came out this year Christoph spoke at Town Hall October 7th in Seattle in 2014. The chance to make a difference is more possible than ever, he says. We know enough of the science and the art, but that understanding comes with a responsibility to look at cold, hard truths. Well, you know, it used to be that we would
1: just um, write a check at the end of the year into the abyss and not really know whether it has an effect. And one of the things we've really learned, I think, is that there are... We have evidence now of what works and sometimes it's sort of surprising Um, one of the things that strikes me is that the cheapest way of getting a marginal child into uh, education worldwide is deworming, you know, we don't think of deworming because our kids don't have worms, but uh, many kids in poor countries do and it's very cheap to deworm a, a child, that child is then less anemic, less sick, less likely to be absent from school and, you know, it costs 50 cents a year to deworm a child and so there's this sort of emerging evidence base uh, about things that uh, matter, you know, domestically in this country. It's things like getting kids at a very young age access to books, to, to children's stories, so that they don't begin school uh, way behind.
0: Yeah, or
1: get them some preschool education and get them hugged. Yes, exactly. Yeah, there's sort of this deficit of, of hugs and, and words that uh, poor kids in the U.S. end up with, and it's Um, You know, one of the things that I really learned in in working on the book is just how much that kind of affection matters for kids, that they are in stressful environments and that is producing tremendous amounts of a stress hormone, cortisol, in their brains. And a constant bath of cortisol really screws up your brain structures, but when you are being held by a mom or dad, when you're being cuddled, that disperses the cortisol. And so, um, you know, there, it's good for your brain to get hugged uh, in, you know, in infancy and, and early childhood. And we can, you know, there's this a hard thing to talk about, just a parenting gap in this country. And it raises all kinds of delicate issues. But one of the lessons is that one can successfully coach parents on how to do a better job, how to hug their child more, how to talk to their child more, how to read to their child more. And parents really do respond so that's the science. What's the art? I guess the art is how to how to actually achieve behavior change. You know, we know that it's important to get that hugging and to get people to talk to their child, and so how do we do this in ways that are sensitive and lead people to to, to change? And um, you know, there we just have experience and what works and what doesn't work, and there. One of the most successful organizations is this is called Nurse Family Partnership, which uses nurses. And maybe because they're in uniforms and because they are nurses, people listen to them. And so when a nurse tells you, you you talk to your child more, read to your child more, then people respond. Um, And it is an incredibly cheap intervention. It it just strikes me that we're always having these debates about inequality and we're picking all this high-hanging fruit and we tend not to pick the low-hanging fruit, which is try to give kids a better start at the beginning of life. Yeah,
0: the low-hanging fruit. I was thinking about that in terms of housing the homeless lately. It's another example here. The high-hanging fruit is we want everybody to be in a decent house with uh, good water, good, good solid construction. But some people who work with the homeless say maybe the low-hanging fruit is we just get some people housed in any way we can and start working on the better solutions later.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the lessons that has really worked there has been um, that having, you know, uh, the problem of homelessness is intimately connected as well with issues of mental health. And we do a disastrous job in this country addressing mental health. And we tend to treat it in incredibly expensive ways, like incarceration. I mean, you know, that you know we condemn, we can't imagine how people in the 19th century were jailing people for being mentally ill. That's what we're doing right now. And a case management system where one helps people with mental health issues deal with various issues in life is an awful lot cheaper, and that helps people find housing, get housing, get into jobs, deal with their daily lives much more effectively and, and humanely.
0: How, how Did this book grow out of some of the work you were doing when you were writing Half the Sky, Transforming Lives, Creating Opportunity?
1: Yeah, I did. You know, after Half the Sky, uh, so Cheryl and I would talk about it, and people kept coming up to us and saying, well, they were saying two things. One was, well, what about the US? Because Half the Sky was really about issues about women abroad. And we did think we should you know, address some needs at home. And the other was they always wanted to know, well, what can I do? And so we wanted to have a good answer to that. So in a sense, The Path Appears is really kind of a guidebook about how to make a difference. And not only abroad, but also at home. Yeah, you even give me six things I can do in, uh, six minutes. in the next six minutes. Absolutely. So you were taking that very seriously, that people do want to have There's a hope. That's right. There's this yearning to, to, to make a difference, to connect to some cause larger than ourselves, you know, to, to model behavior for our kids, to find a purpose in life. And obviously it doesn't always work, and I think we know anybody who's tried to help others has had their heart broken at times it is hard but there and I think a lot of people just kind of feel overwhelmed by the scale of the problems so our message really is that there are ways that we can have an impact and it doesn't always work it's hard but it can be done and it empowers not only other people but also ourselves
0: you know, this town is uh, full of people who are trying to do this sort of thing. This town is also full of people who are very angry at the concentration of wealth that gives people
1: that power. Um, What do you say to both sides? Um, Well, I mean, I guess one way of resolving it would be to have those wealthier folks uh, write larger checks, which would address the inequity. Um, You know, I I mean, see, I, I have a lot of admiration for the um Emphasis in Seattle on addressing social needs uh, abroad uh, and at home, and I think though that you know historically that people tend not to give away their money as intelligently as they make it, and that we can do a better job. Um, you know, trying to help others, and it's for some, it's a question of writing checks. Other people, it's a question of volunteering or, or advocacy, depending on where their, you know, where their comparative advantage lies. Um, but you know, as an outsider, I'm impressed by all the uh, empathy that is oozing out of Seattle. Do you
0: see also innovation? I mean, not just in Seattle, but in this, in this uh, area. Um, You know, We have Clinton's Global Initiative, you have Gates and the Foundation, but do you see real innovation, real clever things happening?
1: Yeah, I do, and I think one of the big differences is that there is more of a business-like mentality coming into the do-gooder world. And so there is much more emphasis on um, careful evaluation, on trying to get bang for the buck, on measuring impact. And people are, I think, understanding that at the end of the day, what's important is not the size of the check that is written but the impact that it has and now we have randomized controlled trials that measure the effectiveness of some intervention as if it were a pharmaceutical drug trial and that really gives us a better confidence about what works and at what price well give me some examples i know you write about this in the book um so uh for example uh one innovation that was much talked about was uh, clean cook stoves to uh, reduce the indoor air pollution in poor countries. and And this is a huge problem that um, you know f- kills vast numbers of women from uh, smoke from open cooking fires. And so these people developed these nice, clean cook stoves that don't produce much smoke, and um, everybody's very excited. Well, then they finally tested them very carefully, and they found that they had zero impact. Um, I think that at some point they will develop better cookstoves that villagers like more and use more. But you know the first round was incredibly disappointing, um, and I think that you know I think we need that kind of careful measurement uh, and feedback. Um, conversely, there's been a lot of talk about microfinance, and usually we think of micro lending. It turns out that micro lending has some impact, but rather less than we might hope. While what is really powerful is micro savings, which is helping people save tiny sums of money, and then you know use that to start small businesses or whatever. But the, it's the savings that is more powerful than the lending, uh, partly because most poor people around the world don't have any mechanism to save. They can't. They they don't have a relationship with a the bank. They can't open a bank account, and so they can save money under the mattress where it's insecure. Um, they can pay a money trader, 40% interest per year on their savings. Um, and so if you help people save in the village, then they have a little cushion when you know, a kid needs to pay school fees or a woman needs a C-section, and it can be truly life-saving.
0: Well, we heard a lot of talk about
1: micro-lending, including somebody winning Nobel Prize for
0: it. What, what, uh, what's the evidence that micro-savings is having an
1: impact? Um, well, the, there was a careful. Uh, so everybody was very excited about micro lending a few years ago, and as you mentioned, Mohammed Yunus had uh, helped pioneer uh, that. And then, when they carefully looked at the impact of micro lending, they found um, that it helped, but rather less than everybody had expected. It was a quite modest impact, and uh, part that seems to be because there are some people who are very entrepreneurial, and the economy is growing, and they managed to find really good ways to invest that money. But in uh, other parts of the world where the economy is growing more slowly, um, and Africa in particular, micro-lending did not do so well, uh, it you know was not so successful. And some people would borrow money. And then if they couldn't start a successful business, they just ended up more in debt. Um, so overall, micro-lending was a success, but a modest one. And then Meanwhile, these schemes, uh, village savings and loans to help people save small amounts of money, they turned out to really have dramatic I mean again, to introduce in careful, randomized trials. Uh, they increased the amount of money that people had to invest, uh, how much food they were eating, how well off they were. Uh, it seemed to work rather better for women than for men for reasons that we don't fully understand. Uh, but um, um, it does seem that the most powerful aspect of microfinance is the savings, not the lending.
0: And you, Nicholas Christoph and Cheryl Wudon, in, in writing A Path of Peers, Transforming Lives, Creating Opportunity, you, um, you recommend to people when they are looking at charities to do a, their own research. So what kind of research are you doing when you pick
1: out a charity that you're interested in? Well, you know, I and mean, I think a starting point is that too often we give to those who ask and so we get a phone call and somebody mentions um, children with cancer or veterans with disabilities or you know a few other kind of buzzwords that just make us feel guilty and we don't want to say no to children with cancer so we uh, we agree to give X amount, even though we know nothing about the caller, nothing about that organization. And I think that's one of our basic mistakes that we give to people who are good at asking. And the people who are good at asking aren't necessarily those who are good at spending the money. And so I, I you know, I don't give to uh, to people who call like that, or if uh, somebody stops me on the street and wants me to sign up and give to some organization that I didn't know about, then I, I don't uh, do that at all, and I, I discourage that. Cheryl and I are in kind of a lucky situation that we are traveling and spending time in the field, and so we can see organizations in a way that, you know, other people sometimes can't, um, but there, you know, we list a lot of organizations in the back of a path of peers, um, and there are sometimes opportunities for people, you know, whether it's at home or abroad, to visit an organization at least to do a little bit of research about. It. If you're buying a TV, you do a little bit of research and in the same way it seems worthwhile if one is donating to a charity to spend a little bit of time doing that research. What are hero rats? So the best Father's Day present I ever got. Um, you know, instead of a necktie or a belt or whatever, um, my kids one year got me a hero rat, a sponsorship of a hero rat. These are these giant Gambian pouch rats, huge rats that have an excellent sense of smell, quite a long life expectancy. And so they have been trained to uh, sniff out landmines and um, they you know, release them in a landmine area, in a mine infested area in Mozambique or Angola. And in two hours, uh, the hero rats can clear as much ground as a human D miner can in two days. Uh, and you know, the great advantage of the hero rats is they're too light to set off the mines, and they just run around the minefield and sniff out the mine and, um, and then it can be cleared. And um, So the, the challenge is to train them. And so my kids uh, sponsored a hero rat and uh, hero rats training. I think it was about 50 dollars. Um, and you know, that's the kind of thing that I sure got a lot more satisfaction out of that than if it had been, you know, one more tie in my closet. Yeah, yeah.
0: You know, you're, this is event's going to be sold out, and uh, they told me they could have probably sold out Benaroy Hall, which is a much bigger hall. What's the, what's the hunger? And, and why is it,
1: if there's that hunger, I still step over homeless people on the streets? You know, I think that there is this deep human yearning to find a purpose in life, to find some meaning, uh, to connect to a cause larger than ourselves. In a more religious age, I think we tended to do that uh, in church. I think that these days, you know, we a lot of us are disconnected from uh, religion, but we still want to have an impact. We want to find that purpose. And so I think that is you know, what draws people. Um, I think that the reason people, you know, that we still have these needs around us is partly because of uncertainty about how to address the problems. And and indeed, you know, these are hard problems. Homelessness in particular is a hard problem because it's so connected to issues of mental health, substance abuse, uh, and others. We see in front of us a problem, and we
0: see a problem far away, and we... We kind of go between those two extremes, it seems. Well, I, I can't really have any, do have any impact there, so I'll ignore that. I've heard you talk about that. But I also don't seem to have impact here. We, you, you, you talk a lot about not falling in despair, so I'm trying to figure out how you, how you think the rest of these folks
1: when we come in. We don't want to be in despair, and
0: yet we still struggle with these same issues.
1: Well, there's some—I mean, one of the paradoxes of the U.S. is that the richest 20 percent donate— substantially less as a percentage of income to charity than the poorest 20%. And I wondered about that, and I don't think it's because the richest 20% are uh, innately less compassionate or less empathetic. I think it's basically because they have constructed their lives so that they're insulated from need uh, to a large extent. And uh, so they don't have that stress. They're not facing it. Well, if you were poor... In America, you were constantly encountering people who were even needier than you are, and so you give. I think we tend to give in reaction to what we see right in front of us, uh, and that's one reason I think it's great when young people travel around the world a little bit um, and you know and see needs like that.
0: I've read you or heard you say that Americans aren't tested enough. We, we're just not as tested as the rest right. of the world, so how do we
1: get tested? We are wealthy. How do we get tested? I mean, I don't think we necessarily want to get tested because the people that I see being tested, it's in Darfur, it's in eastern Congo, it's when warlords are running around killing people, and then then you are tested. Do you risk your life to help a neighbor? And so I, I'm not sure that we want to be tested in that same way, but what has really struck me is that in those situations it is remarkable how people respond. And it comes up in the context, people ask me how I can be reasonably upbeat and optimistic about humanity given all the brutality and evil that I see. And the, the answer is that evil and brutality elicit the very best uh, from people in response. And that inspires me even more than the brutality repels me. You know, I've heard you talk
0: about um, you're not ashamed to use celebrities when you travel. I've heard you talk about uh, the fact that uh, you could write a column in, in five minutes that says Republicans suck, I believe was the phrase <laughs> you used, and you get a lot of readers and a lot of response. You could write a column that's about something that's in the public eye, on the agenda. You get a lot of response. But when you write about these things that are not in the public eye, uh, it falls away yeah is is a path appears transforming lives creating opportunities is that is that a response to the part where interest
1: falls away in part it's this is an effort to try to you know draw people into issues that I think are incredibly important and you know use stories and inspiring stories to try to draw people into issues that I think are incredibly important Um I think that—I'm a huge believer in the power of storytelling. I think that it's hard to engage people in issues sometimes, but that stories can drag people in. I hope so. Yeah,
0: but then you run into the concern that you've voiced that you get somebody sends a lot of money to that one individual but not to rise up to the cause, to the problem. So— uh, what's the
1: what's the mechanism that you hope, what's the next step? Well, the first step is the story. What's the next yeah. step? So basically what I think is that the uh, one has to open a pathway with an individual story. And once that pathway is open, then it's possible to, once that empathy is there based on an individual story, then I think it is possible to get somebody to want to engage in the larger issue to help other people in that position. But I think that that, first pathway has to be built in an, uh, through emotion and through an individual story. Hmm. Just, I think, the way our our brains are structured. Can I ask you something about
0: journalism? Yeah. Solutions journalism? Yeah. Is that what you practice? What If you do, what is that?
1: Solutions journalism is an effort to focus much more on how we can make the world a better place rather than always describing how it's all screwed up. And the great challenge of it is that readers tend to be much more interested in the problems than in the solutions. And it's, you know, it's uh, it's uh, quite dramatic to write about some awful corruption scandal or plane crash, whatever it may be. And often the solutions are complicated, maybe a little bit technical, and somewhat uncertain. And it's harder to engage people that. I do... To some degree, practice that I try to write about uh, ways of addressing uh, problems, but you know I have to confess that I, I do it intermittently. Um, a path appears is uh, kind of an effort to do a little more of that, but it's, it's a challenge.
0: Well you wouldn't be able to, would you. Would you be able to write a column that
1: was just solutions journalism for The New York Times? No, I, I think. And you know the truth is that people wouldn't <laughs> you know, my readership would fall off pretty quickly. You wrote about Ebola and the
0: problems of Ebola back in July. What, what kept it from being, what, what systems in those countries kept it from being addressed then, and where was the, where was the global concern back then?
1: You know, we, we, the whole international community, we screwed up catastrophically on Ebola, and those countries in the, in the field um, screwed up. Now... I think it's a little more understandable that they did, Liberia only had 50 doctors. Um, But the international community, you know, if there's one thing we should have learned from AIDS, from cholera in Haiti, it was that it is so much more cost effective to catch a infectious disease early on. And when, you know, when this started at the end of 2013, we could have stopped Ebola for, for pennies. Uh, it's a minimal loss of life. And we've, we've done that. We did that in Liberia, in, uh, in Uganda um, before. But we thought, oh, this is Uganda. This is Liberia's problem, this is Guinea's problem, this is Sierra Leone's problem. And it really only attracted our attention when it also became manifestly our problem. And now it is our problem. Now we're going to spend more than a billion dollars on it. It's, as long as it's raging in West Africa, it will also come here to haunt us as well. Well, now we have the media screaming about uh, how Ebola is the
0: ISIL of diseases. I believe that was the headline I saw. So we're back to the
1: question about how the media operates in all this environment. I, um, I'm i kind of discouraged by that issue. I think that it, traditionally we in the news media tended to cover some kind of important global issues because these were important uh, and now television especially is just desperate for market share. And the way to get market share is to move to entertainment. And so you can send a crew halfway around the world to Sierra Leone to cover Ebola. Uh, but that's expensive. It's dangerous. And it is so much cheaper to have a Republican and Democrat in a room together yelling about you know, whether it's John Boehner's fault or President Obama's fault uh, that there's Ebola. And that'll get more of an audience.
0: You've talked about how you're hopeful, though, in the way things are changing. You see social media. You see media being creative. You see new people coming into the operations. You guys are doing experiments with, when, with Half a Sky and using social media and games, playing games, using game theory. Uh, does that sort of notion go forward with the path of peers and trying to get people engaged through new, new paths?
1: Yeah, um, as with Half the Sky, there's going to be a documentary on PBS, a four-hour uh, documentary series uh, on PBS about a path appears beginning in January. And we will, again, be using celebrities, um, and again, with somewhat kind of mixed feelings. So we're a little worried about cheapening issues that we care deeply about. But on balance, we think this is a powerful way to bring in a larger audience. Yeah, so why cheapening issues? I've heard you say that before. Why is that a cheapening of the issue in your concern? Because, I mean, the, the celebrities that we're bringing in—these are not, um, you know, the scholars of the issue. These are not experts. These are people who attract eyeballs, and uh, they people are interested in them because they, you know, they see them on the, in movies or in television news and uh, in, in, you know gossip shows, this kind of thing. And and um, they're not experts in a traditional sense. And yet, uh, I think they can be a proxy for the viewer, representing kind of an average viewer. And and there's just a fascination with them. And as long as that fascination can rub off on people who need the attention even more, um, then, you know, I think on balance it works. Yeah, you'd have to do it. If you don't, then you run the risk of having
0: that other kind of column that you write, the one nobody reads. <laughs> right, exactly. Right? Uh, I, I, I can't remember if I read or saw you co- talking about President Obama and what's been happening in Syria. And I think I heard you say that you supported some sort of action against ISIL, even the kinds of bombing. But why is that? A, why isn't that a perpetuation of the problems that have been unfolding in that region for the last fifteen
1: years? Um, in uh, in Iraq and Syria, I uh, I support. Um, limited airstrikes. I think that the airstrikes in, in Iraq already averted a genocide against the Yazidi. I think they, they saved a lot of Yazidi lives. In the case of Syria, uh, you know, I think that to some extent, airstrikes can uh, degrade uh, ISIL if we have strong support from other Sunni countries, but they're not going to defeat it. We can't defeat uh, ISIS, essentially. And I think we need to be. I'm, I'm. I think moving in with ground troops would be an incredibly bad idea. I think it would create a nationalist backlash. I think it would uh, save other countries like Iraq from doing what is critically needed, which is, you know, working with Sunni partners on the ground um, and turning the Sunni tribes in Iraq uh, against ISIS. Um, and I, um, you know, I, I think they're a lot of risks uh, ahead, including that we just make more of a mess in Syria, which increases the refugee outflow, which further destabilizes Jordan and uh, Lebanon in particular, and, and also Turkey. So, uh, you know, there's a balancing act here, and there will be moments when we can strike a convoy uh, in, in Syria, and when that moment comes, I, I don't think we should flinch from that if we can decapitate some level of, of ISIS leadership. Especially in conjunction with SUNY partners, I think we need to be really careful.
0: What's your assessment of President Obama in, in, in terms of this? I heard you talk about Burma. Where was President Obama on Burma when the people were being killed and, and put into concentration camps? What's your assessment of his work
1: as a as a Peace Prize winner? Um, well, certainly winning the Nobel Peace Prize sort of raised expectations, and I don't think that he has met them in that regard. Um, I, you know, I think that. His greatest achievements in some ways have been in some domestic areas, including education. And if he he's called for universal pre-K, that would be a remarkable legacy. Um, healthcare, care, uh, I think, is a considerable uh, achievement. Internationally, though, I think that he has been um, way too passive in uh, initially in Syria. I think that he should have backed the Hillary Clinton-David Petraeus plan to arm the moderate Syrian opposition when it existed. Uh, And in Ukraine, I think he has been too passive about providing lethal assistance to the Ukrainian uh, authorities in ways that probably ended up somewhat strengthening uh, Russian determination. But I also must say that, you know, there, there are more problems in international relations than there are solutions. And it's really easy for me on the sidelines to point and say, oh, you know, look at that mess, look at this mess. It's These are incredibly messy issues, and there often aren't any good solutions to them.
0: And what about you? What's your assessment of your role? You have a big platform, you have a big megaphone. What's the assessment of your role?
1: Um, I think I've I find that I have very little impact in changing people's minds on issues that they think about. Uh, if I write about issues that you know, that that are on their minds I, I I, almost never change people's minds where I think I can have some impact and I think journalism generally can is raising issues onto the agenda that are neglected and so whether it's issues like uh, Darfur or sex trafficking some issues of global poverty I think we can um, illuminate them make people upset disturbed and that that is sometimes one step toward a um, solution is a strong word, but one step toward at least mitigation of the problem. So you got a phone call from your wife. I was thinking about the work
0: you do. You guys work together, you travel all over the world together and apart. You have kids. What, what uh, stress
1: or, or help does this kind of work do for a marriage? Um, you know, there are... Uh, danger sometimes that are uh, stresses uh, I <laughs> I was uh, once in a plane crash in Congo and I um, I thought that I would maybe it would be more prudent to tell Cheryl about that after I returned to the states rather than from the field and uh, so I, I called her up immediately and probably sounded pretty shaken but I, I didn't mention the crash and but I had to since I I had to tell the, the foreign desk of the New York Times since I, you know, wasn't where I was supposed to be. And uh, so shortly after that, uh, somebody ran into Cheryl and said, oh, that was terrible about next plane crash, wasn't it? <laughs> so I was blown. My cover was blown. And, um, you know, I think we worry about each other. Um, I think, though, that we find... we
0: like you give each other pep talks.
1: Yeah. You make phone calls before you go on the stage. <laughs> we do. And, um, you know, we... Um, we are we began our married life in china uh covering tiananmen getting shot at uh and getting denounced by the chinese authorities and it was kind of comforting to be there together we have in our bedroom i got this chinese painting of these two little two little birds on this winter snowy bough and i i got it because it reminded us of of the two of us uh, in china when we were being denounced and followed and harassed uh and there's You know, there's a lot of comfort in that kind of situation when you have each other and when you're like-minded, care about similar issues and trying to make a difference in the same way. All right, sir. You're gracious with your time. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks a lot.
0: Nicholas Kristof. He was at Town Hall October 7th, 2014. You can hear his lecture if you go to the Town Hall website where they're streaming it. You can subscribe to their podcast as well. Thank you for listening to In Residence, Conversations from Town Hall. I'm Steve Scher.